somebody has dreamed up in his own head and uh, out of which some moral lesson or something like that is derived. But this story is a thing that really happened with two very real people in a very real place in very real time. And I remind us of that. This miracle is presented to us as something that happened uh, and it teaches us extraordinary things about Jesus, our King. And so I invite you to hear God's word, Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let us pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the same Lord Jesus who did this thing, and you are here in our midst by your Spirit. Would you bring the same compassion, the same comfort and encouragement, and the same hope to us that you brought to this woman and her son? We ask, bless us with your Spirit, take this your word, and press it into our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're looking at these passages in the Gospels, and we're looking at passages in which Jesus interacts with people. That's what we're going to be doing through these weeks. And as we do that, we're asking the question, what kind of king is King Jesus? What is he like? And I want to, want to encourage you to, to recognize that as we do that, as we look at these passages and as we ask this question and as we answer it, you begin to see, I think you begin to see with real clarity just how different the Christian gospel is, how different the good news of the kingdom really is. Uh, every religion... Uh, offers some gospel, offers some good news. Uh, but I want to encourage you to recognize that those offers of good news are, are empty. Uh, they don't offer the reality and the hope that the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers. Uh, the difference, the real difference that Christianity is emerges as we look at who Jesus is. 
Um, and that difference exists because Christianity is not a set of ideas. There are ideas that are a part of what Christianity is. There are ideas. There is a belief content to the Christian faith. You can't minimize that. It's more than that. It's not a moral code. Christianity is not a moral code. There is an ethic to it. There is a way of living in it. That's to be acknowledged. But Christianity is more than that. Christianity is not, as I've begun to share with us friends on Friday mornings, uh, Christianity is not a quiver in the liver. It's not merely an experience. It's not an emotional thing. Though there is, I'll guarantee you, the best quiver in the liver you will ever experience. But the essence of Christianity is what you see here in this passage. Christianity is an encounter with Jesus. It is an encounter with a living reality, a living, life-changing person, the person of Jesus. And there are true things about him, and there is a way that we are to live, and there is a, an experiential dimension to this, to be sure. But the essence of it and the heart of it is Jesus, a Jesus whom we may know. And I, I want to say this to anybody who may not be clear about why it is we're here on this particular day, this particular morning. We're here on this particular day and this particular morning because for two millennia now, Christians have gathered on this particular day and this particular morning in celebration of the fact that Jesus is alive. And so the Jesus who walks through the pages of the Gospels is the Jesus whom we may know because he is alive. And I tell you again this week, as I said last week, this is a Jesus I want to get to know, if you will, again. And again, and again, and again, and again. And what we have seen so far as we've looked at this particular passage, as we've looked at these three Ps, if you will, we have looked at the pathos of Jesus, that is his compassion, the compassion of Jesus. What we saw last week is that Jesus is a Savior who sees and who feels and who acts. He sees this woman, that she is a widow, and that she has lost her son. And because she is a widow and she has lost her son, she is alone and she is vulnerable and she is fearful. You can insert yourself very easily into her circumstance and conclude those things. And Jesus sees that. But Jesus doesn't just see things. He is the risen reigning king at the right hand of the Father. And he knows everything that there is to know. But he doesn't just see. He feels. He feels what it is that this woman is feeling. He feels her griefs and her sorrows and her doubts and her uncertainty. And then he acts. He acts. And it is as he acts that we see then this second thing. That Jesus has power. He has power to deal with this woman's particular fears and doubts. He has power to address her particular circumstance. Now, I don't know what it is that you're carrying around with you this morning, but I know there's something. And I don't need to know what it is. But I know that there is something. 
something that is profoundly distressing. It may be, it may be like a, a kind of a low-grade infection, a toothache, you know, that's just sort of there. It could be something that's a whole lot more acute than that, but I know for each of us that there is something. And Jesus, the Jesus who walks through the pages of the Gospels, has power to deal with what it is that troubles and plagues each of us in this room. He has power to deal with it. Look at the text again. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. What a brazen thing to say to this woman. Do not weep. Are you kidding? Are you trifling with me? Are you jerking me around? Do not weep. How can I not weep? My son is dead. My husband before him has died. How do you tell me? Do not weep. And Jesus then speaking that word to her, walks up to this bier, this burial coffin, and he touches it, and he says, verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise. And with the touch of his hand, and with a mere word, the 15th verse says, the dead man sat up, and began to speak. Wouldn't you like to know what he said? Wouldn't you like to know what came out of his mouth? Wouldn't you like to have been there, to have seen the crowd following this woman, engage the crowd that is following Jesus? Thousands of people we're talking about. Hundreds from the village, as we pointed out last week, Thousands that are following Jesus across the countryside coming to this town of Nain that is derived from the Hebrew word for pleasant, a place which has become profoundly unpleasant for this woman. Wouldn't you like to have seen what the crowds did when the young man, or the man as it says in the text, sits up and begins to speak? But you know the emphasis is not on what the young man says. The emphasis is not on his words. The emphasis is on the word of Jesus, who by a mere word raises this boy, this young man, from death into life. He possesses power to do this. Now here's an interesting thing about this passage and about the location of this passage. This passage takes place, this story takes place in the tribal allotment of Issachar, in the tribal region of Issachar, which is just south and west of the southernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, just about 10 miles away. And this actually is the region where Elisha conducted his ministry all across this part of Israel. And in another place, not very far, in fact, about an hour's walk from Nain, is the location recorded in 2 Kings 4 of Elisha's having visited 
the Shunammite woman whose son had died. Now, if you're there in Nain, if that's a part of your history, if you will, your regional history, you know Elisha and you know the story. And here's the striking thing, the contrast between Elisha raising the Shunammite woman's son from death to life and Jesus raising this man from death to life. Go back and read 2 Kings 4. It's stunning. Without going into all of the details, Elisha has to be there in the first place. He has to be in the room where the young man has died. He sends his servant on ahead of him with staff and cloak to put the staff on the boy's face and do something with the cloak. When he gets to the room, he goes up to the room, he prays, he lays across the boy, eyes to eyes, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, hands to hand. He breathes into the boy. Nothing happens. He gets up. He prays again. He lays across the boy again. And then the boy sneezes seven times and revives. What's the point to all of this? The point is that Elisha goes through a series, an extended series of prayers and gyrations, if you will, to get this boy back to life. He does it. He does it because the power of God is upon him. But the point is this, where everybody else requires a power outside himself, some sort of formula outside himself, Jesus is himself that power. And with a mere word, he raises this boy from death to life. And he doesn't even have to be there to do it. He happens to be, but he doesn't have to be. Think of the other miracles that occurred in Jesus' ministry. Recognize first that in Jesus' miracles, the same thing happens. A mere word, a mere touch, and the dead are raised, the sick are restored, the lepers are cleansed. Mark chapter, chapter 1, the story of the leper who comes to Jesus and begs that Jesus would cleanse him. And Jesus merely says, I am willing, be cleansed. And he's clean, a mere word, a mere touch. Mark chapter 2, the sinner who is paralyzed on his mat who is brought into the presence of Jesus. A mere word, my son, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and go. And he does. But again, notice from the Gospels that Jesus doesn't even have to be there for this power to be manifest. Look at the passage immediately preceding the resurrection of this boy, the centurion's servant. A Gentile who sends emissaries to Jesus, who come to Jesus and who say about this centurion, he loves our nation. He does good things for our people. He deserves to have you do this. This will preach, okay? This will really preach. The emissaries come in behalf of the centurion and say of the centurion, he's a good guy and he is worthy for you to come to him and do this work. When Jesus goes, the centurion responds and says, what? I'm not. I'm not worthy. I am unworthy to have you come under my roof. But he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. And interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't even say the word. 
He doesn't even say, be healed. What he says is, this faith, the faith of this centurion, is commendable. I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. But as he goes, the servant is healed by the power of Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts, you see Paul doing remarkable miracles, stunning things. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul preaches the gospel in Ephesus, there are some Jewish exorcists who hear about Paul and they hear about the miracles and the exorcisms that he's performing. And so they think that simply by co-opting this in the name of Jesus thing, they can perform the same kinds of miracles and exorcisms. Well, it's a very interesting story. You should read it, Acts chapter 19. My point is that they recognized that they did not have the power in themselves and that they had to appeal to a higher power in order to perform exorcisms. And Paul recognized the same thing. It was not his power. It was a power that came to him that he exercised in the name of Jesus. But you see, Jesus doesn't have to appeal to a higher power, a higher authority. He is, he is the higher power. He is the higher authority. This is what is so critical. You know, we're not that far removed from the Christmas season, from Advent and Christmas. And what do we celebrate during the Advent and Christmas season? We celebrate the incarnation We celebrate the enfleshing of the eternal God. We celebrate this profound and mysterious truth that the God of heaven and earth has taken to himself a nature just like yours, a true human nature, so that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the eternal word who has become flesh and who has dwelt among us. He is the one who has spoken all things into existence. Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. He is the one, Hebrews 1.3, who upholds all things. How? By the word of his power. That's Jesus. There is this wonderful marriage in Jesus and you see it in this text. A wonderful marriage of pathos and power, a wonderful marriage of compassion and capability. Don't you love alliteration? It works so well. Compassion and capability. He feels, and he has power to do something about what he feels as he feels the reality of our griefs and our sorrows. Pathos and power both, compassion and capability in our King. You have to hit the pause button right here, don't you? And you have to stop and you have to reflect and you have to ask some questions. Last week I referred to them as the problems that we'll deal with as we work our way through this passage. Problems, meaning questions. 
that have to be addressed in light of this. And what do I have in mind? What am I thinking of? Well, here's what I'm thinking of. Here's what I have in mind. It's wonderful that Jesus manifested this pathos and this power in the life of this widow as as he raised her son from death to life. But the question is, isn't it, what about my pain? What about my sorrow? What about my suffering? What about my grief? It's it's a wonderful thing to read Jesus doing this in the life of this woman. But what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with my trouble? How does this touch me? It's wonderful that Jesus feels my pain, knows my pain, but where is the power? And folks, I just want to acknowledge that that is a real and deep question. I've stood at too many gravesides. I've been in too many hospital rooms. I've seen and wept myself too many tears to be dismissive of that deeper question. It's one thing, isn't it, to read these stories in the Gospels? And it's another thing then to figure out what in the world this has to do with me in the midst of my sorrow and my grief and my struggle. And it's at that point that we do move to this third point, the purpose of Jesus, the purpose of God. And I want to suggest two things to you, and I want to recognize as I suggest these things that the first of these particularly, but really both of them, are extraordinarily difficult to embrace. I don't want to minimize how difficult it is to embrace my answer to the question, what about me and what about my pain and what about my suffering and my sorrow? It requires the grace of God to believe the things and to believe them deeply and to derive from them the kind of comfort and encouragement and hope that I believe Jesus wants for his people to derive from these things. Two things. What is the purpose of Jesus? What is the purpose of God? Here's the first thing. Grief, suffering, pain are the occasion for the display of the power of God. Grief and suffering are the occasion for the display or the platform or they are the opportunity for the display of the power of God. You learn that from another passage in the New Testament, John chapter 9. It's a passage that the study at the refuge looked at this last Friday morning. John 9, the man born blind. The question the disciples ask of Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And the answer Jesus gives is, Neither, neither, but that the work of God may be displayed in him. What is the purpose of this blind man's suffering? 
it is an occasion for a display of the power of God. His blindness, his brokenness, his weakness was the occasion for the glory and strength of God to be made manifest. Paul said, said the same thing. 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, regarding his thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. And you know, I am so thankful that Paul doesn't tell me what his particular thorn in the flesh was. Because if I knew what his particular thorn in the flesh was, this thing that caused him so much grief that paralyzed him, if I knew what his thorn in the flesh was, I would be inclined to conclude that while God deals with that particular kind of suffering, he deals with only that particular kind of suffering. But Paul doesn't tell us what it is. All he tells us is that he entreated the Lord three times. He pled with him repeatedly to take it away. Remove it. And three times the Lord said, no. And said, you know the answer. Said what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is our culture celebrating? I heard somebody say, strength, intelligence, power, and all of the accoutrements and all of the rest associated with power, appearance and checkbooks and resumes and prestige and all of that. And you know what Paul says, bring it on. Give me more. Give me more brokenness. Give me more weakness so that more of the power of God may be manifest in me. I glory in my brokenness because the brokenness is an occasion for the manifestation, the display of the power of God. Think through your Bibles. Think through your Bibles from Genesis to maps, beginning to end. Think of the story of Joseph. How is Joseph able to forgive his brothers and even say afterward, after being abused by them, sold as a slave? We don't have time to elaborate the significance of all of that. You can't sanitize that story and imagine Joseph being bundled up in royal garments and carried from Palestine down into Egypt on some kind of throne or something. He was sold into slavery, purchased by Ishmaelites, the perennial haters of Jews. He was beaten. He was probably virtually starved. See, I'm going into the details. You can't sanitize this account. How can Joseph, at the end of his life, get to the place where he can look back over his life and after being severely abused, sold as a slave, imprisoned unjustly, was able to say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
Joseph's suffering was an occasion for the display of the sustaining and enabling power of God. Joseph did it by the grace of God. Look at Job at the end of his life, at the end of his suffering. He says, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, Job 42, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. What was true of Job at the end of his excruciating suffering and the pain of his loss? He knew God in ways that he had not known him before and he would not have traded it for anything in the world. When Barb and I were young parents, we had neighbors, Eddie and Chris Matthews, whose daughter Janelle was born with a brain tumor. She died at seven years of age. We knew her when she was five. I remember walking down a dirt road in western Pennsylvania listening to Chris Matthews talk about her daughter's sickness and say, my daughter's cancer is a horrible thing and I hate it. But I would not trade what I have learned about God through this suffering for anything in the world. This is a mother talking about her five-year-old daughter who two years later died. I would not trade. I think that's what Job would have said. I would not trade what I've learned about God. How is it possible that Alexander Solzhenitsyn can say, I thank God for prison in my life? Because by the grace of God in the midst of his suffering, Alexander Solzhenitsyn learned not about the evil of Stalin's Russia, not about the evil of the Russian gulag, but about the evil in his own heart, which turned him away from himself and out of himself to Jesus, where in prison he found freedom and hope in Jesus. His suffering became the occasion for a display of the power of God. How is it possible that Johnny Erickson Tata can be thankful for diving into the Chesapeake Bay at 16 years of age, strike a rock with her head, crush her vertebrae in her neck, and be a quadriplegic now for 40 years. How can she say thank you? Because the power of God is made manifest in the midst of excruciating brokenness, weakness, and pain. And so that is the first thing, and I acknowledge again that it is extraordinarily difficult to embrace and to believe. But as you look at the pages of Scripture, and as you look at the stories of God's people, I want to say to you that suffering is never in vain. It is only in vain when the sufferer turns away from the one who brings meaning and purpose into the midst of that suffering so that that suffering becomes an occasion for the display of the glory of God. And then here's the second thing that I want to try to encourage you with Second thing that this passage teaches us 
this passage teaches us to have hope, not only with respect to the present, but with respect to the final outcome. Let me just point this out to you. This story, the story of the widow and her son, is a picture not of things as they are, but of things as they will be. This story is a picture not of things as they are, but of things as they will be. It is a picture showing us the final outcome. Here's what I mean. This story does not have a happy ending. Ah! This story does not have a happy ending. And do you know why? Because one or the other of these two people will bury the other at some point in the future. Either the mother will lead the procession out of the town again to bury the son, or the son will follow the bier out of the city to bury his beloved mother. You understand what I'm saying? This story does not have a happy ending, if you understand what I mean. Let me suggest this to you. I don't know what your deepest grief is. I don't know what your deepest fear is. I don't know what your deepest sorrow is. I have some idea with some of you, but I'm not even sure about those of you whom I know fairly well. But here's what I do know. If Jesus were to take away that deepest of all sorrows, there is another one in line to replace it. Because as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we live in a sad world. I'm not a gloom and doom guy. I mean, in some ways I am. <laughs> I love beautiful things. I love being with people. I love living where I live. I love the gifts that God has given, and I try to embrace them and be thankful for them. I'm not a curmudgeon. My children might disagree, but I am not. The fact of the matter is, as the Heidelberg Catechism rightly reminds us, we live in a sad world. And if your deepest grief, your deepest sorrow were removed today, if Jesus were to answer that prayer that you have prayed, I want to tell you, I want to assure you that there is another one in the queue behind that one that will begin to afflict you. Because this is a sad world, a broken world, a ravaged world in which you live. And I'll suggest this to you, that if you look carefully at your deepest grief and then you consider your deepest desire, your deepest desire is not for your deepest grief to go away, but your deepest desire is for all of your griefs to go away and not only all of yours, but all grief everywhere. That is your deepest desire and that is where the hope of the Christian gospel is brought to bear. Because what you have in this picture, in Luke chapter 9, is a snapshot of how things will someday be. 
in Jesus who has died and who has been raised and who is seated at the right hand of the Father returns with incomprehensible glory and power and takes each of you by the hand and restores you to those things which have been broken and lost. I'd buy a ticket for this, folks. I'm glad I don't have to. Jesus bought it for me, but I would buy a ticket for this, and I want a ringside seat when the King of Glory comes back and he goes to grave after grave after grave after grave, and he raises this one up and takes this one by the hand and raises this one up and takes this one by the hand and clasps those hands together and says, in effect, Mother, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. That is the hope of the Christian gospel. That the king of glory restores all things so that there is never, ever again death. This woman and her son would grieve again, but they would grieve differently. They would not grieve as those who have no hope. They would grieve knowing that the Jesus who restored them once himself died and was raised victorious over death and would restore them again and forever. And that is why we as Christians may grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Because Christ has been raised victorious. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you see us. I thank you that you feel the weight of our grief. I thank you, as your word says, that you are touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And I thank you, Jesus, that on a particular day, in a particular place, you emerged from a specific, particular tomb, never to die again raised to life for all of those who put their hope and trust in you. And I thank you that you will return with that same power and you will raise us to life everlasting with real bodies so that we may give real hugs and real embraces and dance and celebrate and shout with joy as you take us by the hand and restore us one to another. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that this is not an empty hope, but it is the sure and certain hope of every Christian. And we thank you in your name. Amen.